You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, December 5th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. In a tremendous expression of honesty, um, Ruth Haley Barton wrote this about her soul. She said, in the midst of the outward busyness of my life, and she had been talking about the years that she had been spending uh, along with her husband, making every effort to be a good spouse for her, a good wife, a good mom, a good Christian, a good church member. And she said, in the midst of the outward busyness of my life, there was an inner chaos that was far more disconcerting than anything going on externally. Even though I had been a Christian for many years, I was struggling with some of the basics of the spiritual life. For one thing, I could not seem to love my husband and children consistently. An element of selfishness and self-centeredness that was frightening to acknowledge was being exposed in the crucible of marriage and parenting. At best, I was impatient with the demands of life in the company of others. At worst, I was angry that people wouldn't just leave me alone to pursue my own dreams and ambitions. At first, I trivialized my struggle by categorizing it as something like an early midlife crisis, but the deeper truth was this. Even though I had been a Christian for many years, I did not know how to love, to really love, particularly when love was demanding or inconvenient or interfered with my own desires, I did not know how to die to myself in even the smallest of ways. True transformation seemed just beyond my reach. As it turned out, my limited capacity to love was just the tip of an iceberg. There were questions of the deepest kind right under the surface of my very busy life, questions that I could no longer quiet. There were questions about identity and calling, questions about the possibility of true transformation in the stuck places that I was just beginning to acknowledge, questions about what was driving the frenetic pace of my life. In the midst of much outward productivity, the interior spaces of my life echoed with the words, there has to be more to the spiritual life than this. And if it is, I'm not really sure I want it. Sometimes there were no words at all, just longings that were beyond words. Can you relate? Well, welcome to Redemption Hill this morning. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about this. We are in the second week of the Advent season, and something we often forget about the Advent season is that it has a little bit of an edge to it. Historically, Advent has a bit of an angst to it. It's, 
It's marked by longing. It's marked by anticipation. It's marked by a desire that is yet fully fulfilled. It has a little bit of a, a, a punk rock, or if you're my age, you're 45 or, or up, a little bit of that early Seattle grunge sound angst to it. But it's not normally how we tend to experience Advent. Advent as a season has been captured by our cultural calendar related to Christmas, and it's gotten wrapped up in all the shiny wrappers and all the little chocolate pieces every single day. When you open up your calendar, the, the consumer culture of Christmas has, has really taken Advent hostage. But just to let you know, Christmas as a season in the life of the church actually starts on Christmas Day. And it goes from Christmas Day for 12 days after it. Leading up to Christmas is Advent. It's the season of, of preparation. And I've yet tried, I think this is like, I don't know, my family's up there. How many years have I tried to get us to do 12 days of Christmas and they just won't do it? That sounds good to me. But Advent is a time of preparation. A preparation that's marked by a bit of a holy angst, a longing and a desiring as you and I are reminded in this time that we still live in the space between the, the already of what God has done for us through Christ and the not yet of what our hearts were made for, to be with him, to be fully like him, to be in his presence for all of eternity. We're in the space between. And in the space between, we often experience an angst, a crisis at the level of the soul. Ruth Haley Barton, her, her honesty gives us one voice to express the angst, one voice to understand this crisis of soul that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. It's a, ultimately a crisis of restlessness and desire at the level of the heart. And so we're spending this Advent season choosing not to run away from that angst, not to run away from that crisis, but rather to actually explore this angst, seeking to understand what God may do in us, in it, and in us through it. And so this Advent season is going to be just a little bit different. If, if Redemption Hill is home for you, you're very accustomed to us taking a book of the Bible or a particular section of the Bible and going verse by verse through that particular section or through that particular book until we get to the end. And, and we're going to a little bit different in the Advent season. We're actually taking this season to, to explore larger themes that are, are woven throughout the entirety of the Scriptures. And they're woven throughout the Scriptures in the, in the stories and the examples that are given in the lives of the saints of old and in different ways and pictures that are used in teaching and different elements of wisdom that's communicated to us in the scriptures, and all of these things together expose these realities. They expose different concepts that are often very hard to give very singular language to them, so the Bible comes back to them over and over and over again. Concepts like abiding. It's a big one, right? It's really where we've been and what we've kind of been tethered to and circling around for the last few weeks. And in John chapter 15 in particular, we were there three weeks ago and we've kind of just been circling it ever since. In John 15, Jesus said to his disciples, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This whole picture, this whole concept of abiding, it it is the controlling framework. It's the operating system, so to speak, for the Christian life. And on the one hand, it's a concept that is deeply connected to the idea of relationship, of connection, of intimacy with Jesus. And at the same time, the concept of abiding and the reality of abiding is deeply connected to the reality of transformation, of being literally transformed from the inside out into the image and likeness of Christ. It's a very rich picture that's hard to give very specific language to. It takes these two things and it holds them together. This idea of relationship and intimacy that's found in abiding, it's probably the most discarded element of understanding what Jesus is talking about here. Just a reminder, you can open up your Bibles if you'd like to John chapter 15. We're going to be in a few places, but it's in John chapter 15, if you you weren't with us when we first started this a few weeks ago, that Jesus is with his disciples for the last time. In a matter of hours, he's going to be going to the cross, and he's with them for this last time, and it's a very intense time, it's a very emotional time, it's a very intimate time. He's preparing them for the days and the years ahead when he will leave them, but he will send his spirit, and that is better for them and better for us that he does this. And as he's talking with them that evening, he, he says this to them in John 15, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. I call you my friend. I mean, Facebook has ruined that term for us forever. But the reality of it is, if you go look in the bookstores, you go look on the most searched things in Amazon, you go Google it, all of us, in some sense, on a very human level, are desperate for trying to understand what it really means to have a friend and to be a friend in this day and age. We really grasp at the concept and the idea of what it is to have true friendships anymore. And not only is there this desire and this sense of of being unable to truly grasp it, we're trying to grasp it in the middle of our particular cultural moment, which pushes back against it at every step of the way. But I want you to hear something that Jesus is saying here in John chapter 15. When he says, I call you my friend, this word friend, it carries a much greater, heavier weight than when you and I use this word. The word that he used specifically is a word that's most often used to speak of the relationship between different people in the royal court. If you were invited to a royal event by the prince, let's say, you were invited as his friend. You were his royal friend. And you were there by his invitation and his desire in that moment to be with him. John uses this very word just a little bit earlier in the gospel when he speaks of a best man at a wedding. Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples, he's communicating to us through his word that he wants us to enjoy him, to enjoy his friendship. 
Right? You don't have to perform for me. You don't have to try to keep guessing at what it is I might want from you. I, I, I have been transparent with you. I have revealed the Father's will to you. I'm actually sending my very spirit when I go so that he can ensure that you'll know the Father's intention and know the Father's will at all times and in all things. You're my friend. I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me, to abide with me, to make your settled home with me, to desire to keep company with me, knowing, this is the hard part, knowing that I want to actually be with you, not a future version of you, not some idealized picture of who you think you have to become in order to come into this kind of connection and intimacy with me. No, I want to be with you now. I'm interested in your life. I'm interested in you. I'm interested in your heart now. Try it another way. I like you. I want to be with you. Bring yourself to me. Be with me. Bring your heart to me. Bring your life to me. And here's the thing. If you allow it and actually begin to think about it and are honest with yourself, if you've grown up in the church, your circuits begin to fry a little bit when you think about that. Right? We've got this language of a friendship with Jesus and this relationship with Jesus. That's what we talk about. But when we think about it very affectively and practically and in the reality of what we're actually saying, our circuits begin to fry. In fact, I was, I was with a friend of mine just two weeks ago who was a pastor who was asked to come and lead a retreat for a group of pastors from a church planting network. These are tremendous men who, who are planting churches throughout the southeast region of the United States. It's a fantastic network of churches. So my friend goes, and they want him to talk about the topic of friendship. I mean, even pastors, we can't figure this out either. With you and with each other. We just don't get it either. So we're right there with you in the pew. So they ask him to come and, and teach about this. And he said it went wonderfully. They ate it all up, except for the very first session. The very first session, they stopped, and they just began to push back on everything he said. And do you know what the first session was? The necessity of your friendship with Jesus. This group of pastors said, time out. I don't like that. There's a million different reasons why. For some, we get this misguided idea that maybe thinking of Jesus as our friend, beginning to practically relate to him in this way, may and somehow diminish the nature of his glory and his authority, but that's really foolish if you want to think about it. He doesn't stop being king as he's friend. Maybe that's what it does in our hearts. I can't really put our finger on it, but when we really think about what it means for him to be our friend, for him to call us his friends, for him to want to be with us in this way, our circuits just fry. We'd rather, and we're far more comfortable just talking about wanting to live for Jesus and take the city for Jesus and then argue with other people for Jesus. That's way more comfortable than actually wanting to be with Jesus. 
But the thing the scriptures keep showing us over and over and over again in the lives of God's people and the words of Jesus is that there is no way that we can effectively and deeply live for Jesus if we're not willing to actually be with Jesus. It's out of being with him, keeping company with him, abiding in him, enjoying his friendship and the nature and love of it, that we're actually able to live in any way, shape, form, or fashion, honestly and fully for him. Abide in me. Habituate your life to be with me. Specifically, he says in John 15, verse 9, in my love. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. If you've got your Bible, flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here's, a, here's an example. Again, this is how the Bible takes these things, and you, you begin to see these themes in different lives and in different places, and, and you can kind of understand again from a, a different doorway in what we're talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's one of Paul's best letters. If you pick it up in verse 14, Paul's going to say this to the church. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now listen to Paul's language. I am controlled, right? Directed by, guided by. Some of your translations will say compelled. I'm driven. That's what it means to be compelled by something. Pressed in and forward by. Shaped by. I am compelled by. I am controlled by love. The love of Jesus specifically. This is what drives me. This is what shapes me. This is what is pressing in on me. This is what is guiding me. This is what is moving me along. It is the love of Jesus. Not guilt, not shame, not an effort to live for Jesus and perform for Jesus. No, it's his love that is actually guiding and compelling me. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we just listen to Paul here for just a moment, all of our language and all of our wants and all of our greater sense of comfort to, to take the city for Jesus and to be this for Jesus. What's actually compelling us towards it? What's actually driving all of that living? What's actually shaping and guiding all of that? Is it because your heart is anchored in the reality of the love shown in the one that died for all? Jesus died the death you deserve to die for your sin so that now, as his apprentice, you no longer live for yourself but for him? Is that where your affections are anchored? Is that, is, is that what is truly compelling 
controlling, guiding your living. Man, it is a profound love. In John 15, Jesus reminded them, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The silent, hidden, grammatical, therefore, abide in my love. Settle in there. Make your home there. Let it affect you, compel you, press in on you, shape you, that it can guide you. We talked about this a few weeks ago. If you think, and the majority of people ask the question in a moment of honesty would say this is it, if you think that God is perpetually disappointed with you, and you're out here trying to take a city for him and live for him and argue for him, and you recognize just how poorly you do it and consistently and incorrectly you do it, and you already think he's disappointed in you, you're going to have no compulsion at all in your life to want to be with someone you always think is disappointed in you and you can never do anything the way you're supposed to. But it's being with him. Abiding in his love. It's this language of relationship and intimacy and connection being affected by who he is and how he is with you and for you, shaping you. It's coming to terms and learning to grow in what it is for him to be your friend that you and I are ever truly compelled to live for him and no longer for ourselves no longer for our own agendas, and no longer for the various misformed desires of rival kingdoms that press in on us day by day. And it's this, it's this love that we taste, that we abide in, that we make our home in, that changes us, that Paul is going to go on to say, actually then changes how we actually live. That's where he goes in verses 16 and 17 of 2 Corinthians 5. Abiding in the love of Jesus, keeping company with Jesus, our friend, being shaped by him, changes the way we actually live then. This is the new operating system. Of all the different things the operating system on your computer does, it makes possible all of those things, but it's, all, it's one system that holds it all together. Abiding in him and keeping company with Jesus, abiding in his love, being shaped by him, being recalibrated by him. It's the operating system that then changes. It changes then the way we live. Paul says, if you keep reading 16 and 17, having abided in this love, constantly abiding in him, this love being the thing that controls and guides us, now we go out and we no longer see people the way we used to see them. Right? Did you hear what he, listen to what he says? From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. The way we even see the world that we are in and the people that we are with gets fundamentally changed. Now, Paul goes on to say, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God. So not only does Paul now understand who he is and what God is doing to him and changing him, the way he sees people and the way he sees the life he's living, 
is being fundamentally changed. And so in verse 18, he says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Right? If you've been in church for a while, you've heard reconciliation, you've got a theological category for it. It goes up there with justification and adoption and glorification and reconciliation and redemption. It's a word of relationship. Right? Take it out of your theological box for just a minute. It is a word of relationship. It's reconciliation in some ways that's needed between so many people in this room with one another and people in your life. It's a word of connection and relationship and the restoration and the beginning of a new kind of intimacy. And it's from that that we go forward. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's from this abiding that you and I can actually go to live, as Paul will go on, as Jesus' ambassador. If we don't go forward to live as his ambassador, if we don't go forward in living for Jesus, wherever he has sent us from being with him, at some point, we're going to find ourselves stuck and frustrated and sensing somehow that he's disappointed in us. It was Don Whitney who said, the greatest threat to our relationship with Jesus is our service for Jesus. You can go back and hear Ruth Haley Barton's voice from the beginning. It was this outward busyness Man, this constant effort to be a good Christian wife, a good Christian mom, a good Christian church member. It ultimately left her with this inner angst and crisis at the soul level. And here's the thing as we're thinking about abiding on one hand, holding this this one side of it that is deeply related to relationship and connection and intimacy, you and I know that we can't develop any kind of meaningful relationship with anyone. Our spouses, our, our, our friends, our kids, your roommates, you can't develop a meaningful relationship with anyone if you're not willing somehow to orchestrate your life your time, your attention, your resources, in order to be with them, to be present with them. And the more you're with them, the more you're present with them and knowing them, the easier it becomes for that kind of intimacy and connection and presence to occur even in the midst of chaos. But you can't even begin to establish that kind of connection and intimacy if you're not willing to do something with the way you live your life in order to make space to be with him. The same goes for keeping company with Jesus, for abiding in him. See, it's it's a concept. It's big. It's it's hard to narrowly define. It, it, It holds this one side of relationship. And the more we talk about it, it's, it's like trying to, to grab the ocean with your hands and, and hold it there. You know, no matter how hard you try and how many different ways you move your hands around, at some point the water is ultimately just going to leak out. It's hard to contain. 
But abiding, it, it signals on one sense this reality and this need for relationship and intimacy and connection. And we have to own the fact that we are tremendously underdeveloped in this. It's a very weak muscle for us. Personally, I have no context and language for any of this as a human. Came from a very loving family. My parents loved me tremendously. I moved 18 times, went to 18 schools before I graduated from college. The idea of being present with someone in such a way to be known by them, to know them, for that to be shaping. I just didn't have a language for it. I had a language and an operating system for being able to do things for people, to make you know, an effective impact on a moment, and then to leave and go. Being with was foreign to me. And this whole idea, I think, of this relationship and this intimacy and this connection that Jesus is talking about, that he's inviting us into. It's, it's something that fries our circuits and we kind of scoot away from and, and want to acknowledge with our language, but eh, I'm not so sure what that means when I really think about what it means for how I actually live. It comes because we're so underdeveloped in it. But it's the very thing he's inviting us into. And so on the one hand, it, it's this idea of relationship. But on the other hand, it, it, at the same time, it's like two sides of a coin. It's this huge picture that, that speaks of real, legitimate, deep, inside-out transformation, formation, right? right? You and I know in our own lives, and we know from the testimony of Scripture, that we're shaped by the relationships that we maintain. If you don't believe me, just go read the beginning of Psalm 1. And this formation of heart, this formation of soul that's captured in the language and the idea of abiding, it is the essence of spiritual life. Having been created in the image and likeness of God, our reflection of him was distorted by sin. And when you and I, by the grace of God and the work of his Holy Spirit in our hearts, repent of our sin and believe upon Jesus, Paul says, you and I in Galatians 3 are clothed with Christ. Jesus uses the language and the picture in John 15 that we become grafted into him, the true vine. And it's then that this working of reshaping and restoring begins and God's Spirit begins to transform us according to the pattern for which we were originally created. This whole picture of formation is what we talk about when we talk about Christian spiritual formation. That's what abiding is. And as we saw last week, it's God's agenda for us in the space between in which we live. Right? We let it last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, are being metamorphosized. Not might be, not will be, not possibly could be, but are being into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul would say it this way to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 4.19, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. 
It's what Jesus is speaking of in John 15, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This is that relationship. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, being with him, abiding with him, being company, keeping company with him, it's he then that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Transformation is is the heartbeat of what it means to be Jesus' disciple, his apprentice. Remember, apprentices would orient their life around the chief desire to be with their rabbi in order to become like him. As Jesus' disciples, we orient our life around this same desire because it's what our heart desires the most. And so as abiding is linked as well to our transformation, it also speaks to the reality that our hearts have also been deformed, distorted, impacted in ways that are not shaping us towards the likeness of Christ. The ongoing ways our hearts and souls are misshapen by competing desires and cravings and competing kingdoms and their stories. And we spent a lot of time with that last week. But these competing stories and kingdoms and desires, they they shape our hearts to want the wrong things. And because of it, as we give ourselves over to them, so oftentimes not even being aware of it, what happens is that you and I begin to live with this kind of low-grade chronic sense of restlessness because our hearts and our cravings were made to be satisfied by God. Infinite desires, infinite craving, having been created in his image and likeness only to be satisfied by his infinite glory and joy. And so Dallas Willard would write, our desire is infinite in part because we were made by God for God to run on God. And the desire for the infinite remains, but it's displaced on the things that ultimately lead to destruction for our soul. It leads to things that can't satisfy, leaving us chronically restless. Because what it is we're giving ourselves to and desiring and craving isn't able to satisfy. So what do we do? We go find something else. We keep going. And this chronic restlessness leads to a life of overload. Because we take on more, we go after more, we try to get more, do more, have more, thinking that somehow the restlessness will be satisfied and it's all like gas on a fire. You add in the cultural moment in which we live in a digital world and a digital economy and a digital reality that runs on the the fuel of our accumulation and accomplishment, and we're bombarded daily with stories and ideas that are designed to fuel the wants of rival kingdoms. If you just get this, if you have this, if you experience this, if you do this, if you see this, and then social media throws a log on the fire, call it envy, And an economy is completely established and ready at the moment of a click to monetize all those restless desires. In fact, you can go watch it. There was a series on the BBC. It was called The Century of Self. It was documenting the 
the transformation of the advertising industry post-World War II and the impact, and they'll trace it through Freudian psychology, but ultimately it was how the strategic work of the advertising industry based on a rival story of a rival kingdom from a rival prophet began to shape the idea of how our economy would be built and we shifted from a needs-based world to a wants-based world. And it's, they have a, the writing of a man named Paul Mazur, who was a, an early member of Lehman Brothers. And this is what he said. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desire culture. People must be trained to desire things even before the old has been consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And ever since, we live in a cultural moment where we are being shaped to spend time and money on things that we don't really need. Money and time we have scarce resource of in order at some point to satisfy a restlessness or impress a people who don't really care. And add to it the unrelenting pressure to always do more and accomplish more than ever before. And you know it's true. You end up with what was already being talked about in the 1950s by a cardiologist named Meyer Friedman who coined the term hurry sickness. A continuous struggle and unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things and participate in more and more events in less and less time. And all of it is forming our souls. All of it is shaping our desires. All of it is compelling, beginning to control our hearts. Add to it that our attention span drops every year. We're around around eight seconds, research would say. And a world and an economy ready to maximize that attention deficit built to distract you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You and I are being robbed of the ability to be present to people, to ourselves, and to Jesus, and we're being shaped, and we're being deformed. The result is an epidemic of spiritual and emotional unhealth. A.J. Swoboda is a pastor out west. He said, we've become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked, spiritually malnourished people in history, bowing at the sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity. Our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value as they wither away, exhausted, frazzled, displeased, and ever on edge. Restless. Restless. Angsty. They're crises because they're being shaped by things that can't satisfy. They're like a jar filled with water from the James River, and you shake it up, and it's just busy and cloudy and moving and going and crazy all over the place. That's what it looks like on the inside. And we feel it. And so the question of abiding and the question of formation becomes what form or whose form are we being shaped into? Are we aware of it? In what are we abiding, making our settled home? Attempting to satisfy the restlessness of soul. What in our hearts and lives needs to be reformed? These are the questions not only of abiding and formation and relationship, but the questions of the Advent season. And it's right here 
in the angst and the busyness and the chaos. It's right in the midst of all of the rival kingdoms and their voices that God meets us by his grace and through his spirit to be with us, to change us, satisfy us. I want you to hear the invitation of Jesus to this relationship and this transformation. It's Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. But I want you to hear it in a way you probably have never heard it before. I don't think anyone has captured the essence of what Jesus is saying here better than Eugene Peterson in the message. I don't think many of you brought your message to the service this morning, so let me read it for you. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Listen to him. Come to me and get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to truly live freely and lightly. Keeping company with Jesus being with him, walking with him, learning from him the unforced rhythms of grace. This is his invitation to relationship, to transformation. This is his picture of abiding with him. He gives you the desire and the power for such relationship and transformation by his spirit Yet there is a certain amount of reformatting of our life and habit that has to take place if we're going to keep company with him. As we learn his rhythms, take on his rhythms, the unforced rhythms of grace that come from him, that we might begin to truly live freely and truly live lightly. You see, it's as his apprentices that were called to take on those rhythms and habits and patterns. In his kindness and grace, he calls us in relationship to participate in this. And here's the thing, I've gotten the emails and we've had the conversations and we've been talking about abiding and there's this, there's this desire that comes when you are patterned your life in the church and week in and week out and it's good like this, but you're, you're waiting for me to say something new about this. Some of you have books about this, you've heard about this, you know, what am I going to say new about all of this? Well, I have nothing new to say. That's the challenge. The way forward in this for us is millennia old. It's the way the church has been keeping company with Jesus and being formed by his spirit for thousands of years. Again, you and I want to hack everything. Time hacks for productivity, health hacks for good living, work hacks They're all efforts to keep us from having to own the fact that it's the ordinary realities of faithfulness that go the distance in life. But give me anything new. Just give me something new I can try, something new I can try. It's the ordinary habits of faithfulness that ultimately go the distance in life. Sleep eight hours a night, 
drink more water than you do coffee and Coke, turn off the TV a couple hours earlier, move your body a little bit every day, eat more real foods than fake foods, and guess what? You're going to be headed in the right direction. But that requires a lot for how you live. That's going to require changes that I'm not sure I really want to make. Give me the hack. I mean, how can I do more with less? Sleep less and get more. And we find ourselves chasing our tails over and over and over again. There's no new hack to being Jesus' disciple. There's no new thing I can give you for being his apprentice. It's simply learning to actually keep company with him, to be with him, to live his way, his practices, his rhythms, his habits, his unforced rhythms and disciplines of grace that his spirit works through in us to shape us. They're patterns and rhythms that push our lives to be with Jesus. This is where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks, but we have to start by diagnosing the problem. I mean, this is part of the Advent season. What's under the surface of this restlessness? What's actually happening at the level of the souls or being formed into the kingdoms of this world? We need to see it that we might expose it so that you and I, who might be so accustomed to hearing all these things because we've been around the church and this world for so long so that we might hear the invitation of Jesus anew. Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Watch how I live Learn from me the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me. Listen to the promise. You'll learn to live freely and lightly. Friends, I want to recover the life, the quality of life, the zoe, the quality of life that Jesus was talking about that we looked at throughout the entire fall. I want to recover that life that I was created for. It's what I want. It's what I want for you. And so together, over the coming weeks and in the coming months, we're going to explore Jesus' unforced rhythms of grace. And my prayer is that as we do it, we'll discover that keeping company with Jesus, truly abiding in Jesus, is the only way to truly live free. Let me pray for us this morning, and we are going to take a moment to respond to God's word. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, you, you have made us for yourself. You sent your son to start the work of rescuing us from our restlessness. Lord, I ask this this Advent season that you by your spirit would help us to see anew our, our need for you and to see anew your power at work in us to transform us. Your power at work in us by your spirit according to your grace to change us that we might begin to truly live freely. Truly live lightly. Truly have life. Would you do this work in us as we turn to you and ask you to help us to see, see our need and see your son. We ask it in his good name, for his glory and our joy. Amen. 
You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.